You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. October marks the month of the Reformation. It's a very important event in Christian history, but what are the ramifications of it, and how do we deal with different perspectives on Christianity? Well, today on the show, we're going to be having dialogues with an Orthodox priest and a Protestant professor here. So, uh, let's uh, introduce our, our guest here, uh, Dr. James Payton. He's uh, our Protestant. He's got a B.A. in Vision from Bob Jones um, 1969 and an M.A. that he got from 1971 in theology. From, he got his MDiv. In 1975, on, <laughs> in 1975 at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and his THM in Historical Theology, same time, same place, and his PhD in Intellectual History of Early Modern Europe, Second Field, Late Medieval, Political and Ecclesiastical History from the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario. He served eight years as a pastor and 30 as a history professor at Redeemer University College. He's now professor of history, professor emeritus of history there. So, uh, Dr. Payton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And Father Barnabas Powell was, is a native of Atlanta, Georgia. Having been raised in a small Pentecostal church as a boy, Barnabas grew to love the church, enjoy the music, and eventually came to be a youth pastor at his home church. He attended Toccoa Falls College and Evangelical Protestant School in Northeast Georgia and received his theology degree there. In 1988, he then went on to establish a new church in the Atlanta area. While pastoring, he was heavily involved with evangelical Christian media. He served as Charles Stanley's In Touch Ministries as Promotions and Public Relations Coordinator and served as the Affiliates Manager for Leading the Way Ministries of Dr. Michael Youssef. He became interested in the history of the church and began a reading program that would eventually lead him to enter the Orthodoxy. Several of the families that had been with him during his pastorate entered the Orthodox Christian Church together in November of 2001. He joined the staff of Orthodox Christian Network for producers of Come Receive the Light in April of 2003 and now serves in media outreach as the Director of Development. Orthodox Christian Network is the SCOBA agency commissioned to create and sustain a national media outreach for the Orthodox Christian Churches in the U.S. In 2007, he was given blessing of Metropolitan Alexios of Atlanta in a Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. November 8, 2009, he was ordained to the diaconate in his hometown of Atlanta at Annunciation Greek Orthodox Cathedral by his eminence Metropolitan Alexios. And on Sunday, March 8, 2010, he was ordained to the Holy Priesthood of the same cathedral. He's now the yeah, post-temony. Postemenos, the senior pastor of Saints Raphael, Nicholas, and Irene Greek Orthodox Church in Cumming. 
He founded Faith and Courage Ministries in 2014 as a host of Faith and Courage Live on Ancient Faith Radio and produces Monday through Friday a devotional called Faith and Courage Daily. He's particularly motivated by the beauty and timelessness of the Orthodox Christian faith and strives to see this timeless faith put down deep roots in America. The Orthodox Christian faith is uniquely suited to quench the spiritual hearts of Americans from our backgrounds and with the depth and beauty of the Orthodox faith. Ultimately, he believes that Orthodoxy is a path to both spiritual renewal in our Orthodox homes and path for all believers to spiritual maturity. That's a mouthful there. So, uh, I'm honor. exhausted just listening to it. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nick. It's my honor. Yeah. Now, um, Dr. Payton, um, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Okay. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist home, mm-hmm. dispensational, premillennial, the whole package, mm-hmm. and went to um, a university that reflected that outlook. Uh, but in, in the, at that university, the emphasis was whatever the Bible says is so is so, and that encourages people to read the scriptures. And as I read them, I found that much of what I'd learned and been taught didn't seem to fit well with a good reading of scripture. And so I began to cast about under the Lord's guidance. Some friends helped me find my way uh, toward some better teaching and instruction, and I, and I was drawn toward the Reformed tradition uh, of Protestantism out of the Baptistic background I'd come from, uh, the fundamentalist one. But along the way, what what had happened was that I'd discovered the history of the church, which finally offered me a way to bring together my love of history and my love of the study of the scriptures. One of the things that I, I, I owe very definitely to my fundamentalist background is a high esteem for the scriptures and the encouragement to read it and to memorize it and, and to read through the entirety of scripture and memorize as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So... Bringing those two together with the field of church history uh, offered me an opportunity to wed those two interests in a way that I'd never known of before. I'd never heard of church history, as far as I could tell. Uh, As I was moving toward becoming um, a a pastor in a Reformed tradition, I recognized that a better way to do it would be at a seminary that embraced that perspective rather than reading on the side. And so I went to Westminster Seminary, and while I was there, I took all the church history courses I possibly could— most of them were on the Reformation era or subsequently, but there was one that I that I hadn't been able to take because I hadn't been offered, and I took up my last semester at, at um, Westminster, and it was called Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, by this time, I had a really good grasp of the fundamentalist and Reformed worlds, and I'd come to understand Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism very well. So I knew the package of Western Christianity, but as far as I knew, it was just Christianity. I didn't know the Western uh, applied to it at all. Well, when I took this course in Eastern Orthodoxy, it was exciting because I found that the Orthodox, using the same scriptures, relying also on the, the same creeds, um, ask different questions of scripture. And when you ask different questions, you get different answers and have different emphases. And it was so enriching, so stimulating that to, to discover something that brought me anew to the scripture, anew to the faith. And uh, so... I, I continued to study orthodoxy in the years since. I went on to earn a Ph.D., as, it, as was mentioned in the history of, of the Reformation, intellectual history of early modern Europe. Uh, but my, my doctoral work was on how the Reformers viewed church history as a subordinate authority beneath, script, beneath Scripture, how that would work for them, because they, they didn't just think, oh, well, anybody has a right to say whatever they think is out of the Scriptures. But they were bounded by the early creeds and also the... Uh, 
uh, the church fathers. And so I've continued that study since um, I became, I was a pastor, as I mentioned, for eight years. And then became a professor at uh, Redeemer University College and was able to um, suggest and have accepted courses on uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, Byzantium, and so on, to give an opportunity to flesh out what that would all mean. And I've continued to study those in the years since. And I've uh, published one book on, on Orthodoxy, one on the Reformation, and I have another book on Orthodoxy coming out um, next year, if, if all continues to go well uh, with the readers. So that, that's where I've been, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and, and interact with Father Barnabas and with you, Nick, on this interesting topic. Well, maybe if today goes well, when that, next, when that book comes out next year, we can have you two both come back again and discuss it again then. Or, cool. And yeah, I can say, exactly. as a former dispensationalist, I understand a lot about where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Father Barnabas, I think you kind of began with kind of a more fundamental background as well, but you've taken a very different path from Dr. Payton, haven't you? Well, I, I, I think, you know, Nick, for me, um, I'm, when I was growing up, I knew there were, there were both kinds of Christians. Mm-hmm. There were Pentecostals and Baptists. Everybody <laughs> else was, everybody else was, such, in the world that I grew up in, that's all we knew. Oh, then the Methodists, but I mean, the Methodists were, were kind of, they were kind of liberal. So we were, we were very suspicious of them. But uh, growing up in a Pentecostal church, uh, I, uh, I grew up in that classic subculture of, of American Christianity. And of course, Pentecostalism is now, has swept the globe and the charismatic movement, all that. And frankly, it can be argued that, uh, that Pentecostalism is actually a fourth kind of Christianity uh, uh, in, uh, in a human experience, growing very, very fast in the third world and in, uh, in Africa and in Central and South America. Uh, and so that's my world, the, the, the Pentecostal world and, and preaching and the preachers were my heroes. And uh, I remember that uh, I was uh, saved at a, at a uh, Southern Baptist church in Mableton, Georgia, during vacation Bible school when I was seven years old. And, uh, and so all of those memories are mine and the wonderful music and the wonderful preaching and so on and so forth. And um, that was what I loved. And that's that's what I fell in love with. And I wanted to be a preacher since I could remember. Um, one of the things that when I was a kid, uh, all the other kids were playing G.I. Joe when I was pretending to be Billy Graham. <laughs> we'd get together down in the basement and I'd have all the chairs lined up and I'd preach and all my little friends would come down and, and, uh, and they'd, uh, they'd accept the Lord. And so that was my, that was, that's, that was my dream. So that's what, that's what I always did. And finally, I went out, finally got my, my first theological education, my, my bachelor's degree in pastoral theology from Tacoma Falls College, a classic uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Evangelical Protestant School and that really opened up my eyes. Uh, I was very blessed to have a, a, a Pentecostal pastor that that you know he wasn't he wasn't um, uh, uh, formally educated himself, but he really believed in education. Uh, too many times in the early days of the Pentecostal movement, uh, Pentecostalism really looked with suspicion on going to seminary. They we used to call it the cemetery because that's where faith went to die. That's what we called it. So it was it was something that that fortunately I had a pastor who really encouraged me to study and really encouraged me to get uh, get my uh, my uh, degree and and so I did that and that opened up uh, my eyes to experience some things I never I, I sensed something else was out there 
but I didn't know where to look. And so this, the evangelical Protestant school gave me my first taste of church history, Dr. Payton. And, um, uh, that started, uh, that started, uh, several years of asking some very inconvenient questions of my past. Uh, and so, uh, consequently, after I, uh, after I graduated there, I planted a church in Woodstock, Georgia, called Church of the Firstborn. And me and my best friend, Rod Loudermilk, would get together on Thursdays and talk about church history because we loved it so much. And the thing, what was so funny is I kept talking to Rod, and I said, Rod, I keep coming across these Orthodox people. Have you ever seen one before? He said, oh, no, I don't think so. I said, well, do you think they made it? Do you, do you think they still exist someplace? I've never seen one before, <laughs> at least that I knew of. And so as we began to talk, and of course the journey lasted about 10 years, uh, and in 2001, November of 2001, about 25 families from the church I was pastoring in Woodstock, myself and, and uh, my family and Rod Loudmilk and his family, we all converted to the Orthodox Church at St. Mary of Egypt Orthodox Church in Norcross. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Then I, I needed to get a job because I couldn't pastor anymore, at least where I was. And, um, uh, and the work that I had done in Christian media for, that I'd been involved in for 15 years and radio and television and doing that, um, uh, that was also, that dried up. Um, uh, and so I went to work for Orthodox Christian Network uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then after working there for a while, I was given permission to go to seminary at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and I went there in 2007. Uh, 2010, I graduated uh, after having been ordained to the priesthood, uh, and now I'm at the the first my first assignment, my only assignment uh, that I've had since I've been a priest since 2010 here in Cumming, Georgia, at Saints Raphael, Nicholas, and Irene Greek Orthodox Church. Um, the first thing I remember when I first started this journey, we went to an Orthodox church for the first time, and I. I had never been in a liturgical setting before. I, my, that wasn't my background, wasn't my history. I, I, that, that's not something that we did. We did have a liturgy. We didn't call it a liturgy. We just had a very, very simple liturgy, but it was a liturgy. We did it. We met every Sunday at the same time. If you, if you meet every Sunday at the same time, you got a liturgy. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to this Orthodox church. And I, um, me and me and my best friend Rod, we went there and we we looked around, and these were a group of evangelicals that had become Orthodox. Uh, they, they became known as the Evangelical Orthodox Church, that eventually came into the canonical church later on. That's a, another subject. But the point is, these were evangelicals that had embraced Orthodoxy, so we at least they at least understood where we were coming from. We went to the church there, and we saw all the icons all over the walls. I didn't know what to look at first. But I remember being overwhelmed by the intensity and focus. There was a lot of stuff going on, but it was really clear that these people were worshiping God. I mean, really, seriously worshiping God. And it was a very, very moving experience for myself and, and, and my buddy Rod. And I, that, that, that we never... We, we were very much like the emissaries from the Slavic people when they went to Constantinople, and they said after that, after the liturgy, uh, when they wrote to the prince, they said, you know, uh, we didn't know whether we were in heaven or on earth. It was very, very moving, very powerful, and that 
kind of kick off uh, the intense look into becoming Orthodox. I get asked a lot, how in the world did a Pentecostal preacher become an Orthodox priest? And I tell them it was a short and long journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get into that journey, Sam, I'd like to get ask you you a question also. Dr. Bain, let's talk for you. I mean, this is Reformation Month here. What does Reformation mean to you? I'm sorry. You asked that of me. Yeah. What, uh, what, what does it, what does this month matter to you? If, if it being the Reformation Month. Well, last year was the 500th anniversary of the beginning mm-hmm. of the Reformation, and for the entire Protestant world, and indeed even the Roman Catholic world, which together with the Pentecostals and Anglicans comprised Western Christianity, the Reformation was an enormous uh, had an enormous impact on the Church. By challenging it on on uh, what it was about, where was its focus, uh, and the the endeavor was the hope was to reform and revitalize the church. That's not the way it turned out. What ended up happening is that um, Luther and others who came up, came on side with him uh, ended up being kicked out of the church by the leading of, by the church's authorities at the time. Um, so it wasn't as if. The, the reformers decided, well, let's set up our flag and march out and, and establish a new church. That wasn't their desire at all. But that needed to be the, the, the case for them is to set up alternate church structures because they were expelled from the church. Uh, over the course of centuries, if we come closer nearby, uh, there's been some significant attempts to understand each other better, and none probably better than the uh, a joint declaration of the doctrine of justification in 1999, where Luther, the Lutheran World Federation, the largest Lutheran body in the world, uh, and the, the Roman Catholic Church ended up uh, agreeing on this doctrine of justification so that a very significant difference, uh, the main issue in the Reformation has largely been uh, approached in a way that brings, brings things together, uh, brings things together, um, and uh, enables us to talk to each other so that the hostility that's been, that marked re- relationships for hundreds of years is has largely dissipated. But in the meanwhile, of course, churches set down roots, patterns become ex- established, and uh, you know the, the endeavor to work together and to appreciate each other is significant. But I think one thing that's important for me, uh, given my emphases on the Reformation in the past, is to recognize that None of the reformers wanted to break the church up, the church as they knew it. What they wanted to do was revitalize it, get it back focused again more directly on a, a simpler message of, of, of salvation, uh, acceptance by God, by grace through faith. Um, what ended up happening was with the being expelled and with differences among the reformers and difficulties of them understanding each other, Multiple churches got ended up, ended up getting started. Uh, the tenor of the times in the 16th century and 17th century was very divisive, uh, confrontational, mm-hmm. and borders got lines got drawn, further lines got drawn, and it it you ended up with uh, the phenomenon by the present day that there are according to a, a group that keeps count of this at, at Gordon Conwell Seminary. It's reflected in the World Encyclopedia of Christianity. There are 40,000 Protestant denominations by the present day, not churches, but 40,000 Protestant denominations. And one of the desperate things that needs to be done for us in the Protestant world 
is to try to find ways to come together with others and, and recognize each other as brothers and sisters in Christ across those differences of opinion that don't keep us from, from knowing each other. Um, for me, that's been an important part of my journey. But for me, you know, what, one of the significant things is try, trying to figure out how to help Protestants uh, engage with orthodoxy because orthodoxy was in a different historical space, different cultural space, right. and it didn't go through the Reformation era. It wasn't even a problem for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to ask uh, Father Barnabas Powell the same question, but I, I kind of wonder what it's like from your perspective because it could be kind of like, these two are just going to duke it out. I'm just going to sit down and get some popcorn out and watch them go at it and such. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think that's uh, that's fair. It's certainly the spirit of our age to uh, be confrontational and the like. But um, I, I've discovered a long time ago that has um, how shall I put it limited um, uh, value. <laughs> Let's put it that way. For me, the Protestant Reformation, and frankly, I, I would say that. Probably for the most of us, you got to understand. Since um, nine, since the middle 1980s, there have been uh, upwards to 30,000 evangelical Protestants enter the Orthodox Church in the United States. Um, the largest group of people swelling the the uh, uh, swelling the ranks of the Orthodox in the United States right now are former Protestants, uh, and so this is something that th- this is becoming very much. Though it is not an orthodox experience, it is becoming very much part of the heritage of American Orthodox Christians. The Reformation is part of our past, mm-hmm. for varying degrees. Um, that's um, that's that is looked at as as a, a, a sad thing. Uh, for me, I've come to come to understand the Protestant Reformation as frankly an absolute tragic necessity. It had to happen. It had to happen for lots of reasons. And, of course, I'm sure Dr. Payton is, is very, very well aware of the, 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 um, uh, the scholars surrounding Luther reaching out to the Orthodox um, uh, 10 or 15 years after the Protestant Reformation in an attempt to kind of talk about that. Even Luther himself said the Greeks were the ones that preserved the faith. The problem is the distance and the language and, frankly, the liturgical differences that already existed and the, and the theological language that differences that already existed made communication almost impossible, where the ecumenical patriarch finally wrote back to the folks in, in Germany and said, listen, guys, don't, don't, don't write with any more theological questions or comments. Let's just talk back and forth. Ask how we're doing. We'll ask how y'all are doing. How's mom and them? Um, that's the Father Barnabas translation. Uh, and and then let's let's just get to know one another because we're we're at, you guys are making theological statements and we're making theological statements and it's obvious we are not communicating so let's just don't do that anymore. Uh, the Tubican scholars had some uh, had had a, a tremendous opportunity there, but history and language um, conspired to to bring that to nothing early on in in the Protestant Reformation. But for the Orthodox, we would look at the West. Uh, experiencing this tragic necessity as um, as a gift of God in the sense that all tragedy and all pain is an invitation to get to know where we ourselves are broken and, and in spiritual need. So it's a good thing. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a happy thing. Ask anybody that talks about Orthodox history about the fourth 
crusade, and they'll they'll talk to you about the reason why uh, the 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 Orthodox Christians said uh, we would prefer the turban of the Sultan over the tiara of the Pope uh, because of the 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 sad things that had happened in the history in the Eastern part of the Roman Empire. Hmm. But the Protestant Reformation for me uh, is a tragic necessity. It had to happen. Uh, it's uh, it's it is uh, it, it's very much like even my own Pentecostal movement in the West. In my personal opinion, the Pentecostal movement had to happen in the West because Western theology had become sterile and uh, and clinical, and there was this missing element of intimacy and mystery. Uh, and so, the Pentecostal movement, frankly, I would say the Pentecostal movement is. Um, I'm Orthodox because I was Pentecostal. That's just that's just that's that's why this journey turned out the way it was. But for me, the Protestant Reformation is a tragic necessity. Uh, although I will say this, it's extremely important that the audience hears this from a convert to the Orthodox faith. A wise priest told me early on because I was very angry at my past. Why didn't they tell me this? Why didn't they teach me this? And this wonderful Orthodox priest looked at me and he said, Barnabas. If you can't be grateful to people who gave you the best they had, they, the best they knew how to do, if you can't learn to be grateful for them, for teaching, the, teaching you the name of Jesus, teaching you to love the Holy Scriptures, teaching you to love the faith, those people gave you a gift you'll never be able to repay them for. If you can't be grateful to them, you can never be orthodox. It was a powerful moment in my own life to really be able to say, thank God for my Protestant background, my Pentecostal background, and to see the value uh, and the treasure given to me by these precious, faithful, godly Christians. God bless them. Well, Dr. Payton, you know, I'd like to first ask, would you agree with tragic necessity as a way to define the Reformation? Yes, I would. Um, in the book I wrote called um, Getting the Reformation Wrong, Correcting Some Misunderstandings. Good book, by the way. Yeah, I read it in seminary, too. <laughs> oh, thank you. But um, one of the things I point out was that there, long before the Reformation happened, for a couple of hundred years already, there were cries that things were had gotten way out of line. They called for ref, for changing things from the, from the head to the toes, Reformatio incompetent memories. All the way down, and so this was not something new that that Luther brought in or the other reformers brought in. What they were able to do was speak very effectively and using the printing press, using the means of communication where possible, uh, they were able to be heard in ways that people in the preceding couple of hundred years had not. Right. Uh, and as as well, there was by this time the development of enough. Uh, self-consciousness and self-assertion on the part of leaders of, of, of political states, civil states as we would call them, that they could get involved in ways that in the priest, you know, to support or oppose uh, that hadn't been possible for a couple of hundred years. So it was, this was a powder keg waiting mm -hmm. to be lit. Mm -hmm. And Luther happened to have the match that did it, uh, Luther and the others. But uh, there was, something was going to have to happen. And long since the, uh, Roman Catholic scholarship, except the most defensive of them, Roman Catholic scholars of this era have said that uh, something was going to happen, sure. and it happened to take place with Luther. But yeah. something had to be done, they recognize as well. And if anyone's interested, at the end of the month, we are going to be having a Protestant Catholic dialogue, so we'll be getting some opinion from people who might disagree with that. Going on. No, but, that might be. But, Dr. Payton, what I'd like to ask you also is something that uh, I heard Barnabas discussing on here is that uh, 
I finished reading your book yesterday, Light from a Christian East. I thought it was a good book, and at the end I was wondering, you seem to speak so highly of the Orthodox Church here, and yet you're not Orthodox. I'm, okay. I'm curious why that is, honestly. Okay. Uh, a couple things. One, my field is, I, I'm an intellectual historian, which doesn't mean I'm smarter than other historians. <laughs> <laughs> It means that I'm a historian that focuses on intellectual history. Right. And to do my job well, uh, whatever period I'm studying, whether it's in the Middle Ages or, or in, in Eastern Europe or Byzantium or in this regard teaching about orthodoxy, I need to get inside the minds and thought patterns, the possibilities in, in which people could address issues and try to think as they do uh, and understand uh, you know, understand them on their own terms rather than forcing whatever I'm studying into some North American or Protestant uh, package, depending on what we're studying. And so that that's always been my my intention. Uh, and and I'm pleased, you know, that that when when I've spoken in Orthodox area uh, or in, in with Orthodox in the audience, uh, they, they've they've acknowledged that. At one point, I was making presentation at the University of Calgary. This is 20 years ago, almost. Uh, and it was um, it was entitled "What Western Christians Can Learn from Eastern Orthodox," and so I, I presented it, presented some 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 points, and then answered some questions. And afterwards, a priest uh, from the from the Orthodox Church in America, who served nearby uh, in Calgary, said to me, "He said, I like listening to you because you think the way we do. You don't make us sound like Protestants." And and so that, that's I think part of part of the the invitation challenge. Uh, you're right. I have not converted to orthodoxy uh, in this regard. I I find that this is where the Lord has placed me as He's led led my life. I was in the fundamentalist world, and like Father Barnabas, I'm I appreciate so much of what I had there, even though I've departed from that particular tradition. And I found myself uh, that the Lord has led me, as I would say, into the Reformed tradition, into a segment of it which emphasizes that the Church has always has to be reformed and reforming, which means learning better and trying to find ways of being more faithful. So for me, that's meant that um, that I, I can be involved in studying other things than just the Reformed tradition or just Protestantism or whatever. And if there are ways of using that to help us in the, reform, in, in the Western world be enriched by the keen and deep insights of orthodoxy, so much the better. Amen. And if I can serve well to bridge the gap, you know, to make good communication with orthodox um, and, 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 and help to bridge that what's often been a large chasm in the last many years, oh, man. That, that'll be good. And uh, not long ago, um, I, I was interact. I had taken my students to um, – uh, in, the, in the orthodoxy class when I was still teaching to a combined orthodoxy service that's held in the first Sunday of Lent, the Sunday of orthodoxy. Sunday of orthodoxy, yeah. Yeah, and so all the orthodox communities in Hamilton get together, and uh, and I ended up running into uh, the dean of, this, of the Serbian Orthodox Cathedral, uh, whom, with whom I'd interacted over the years. And he said, I want to thank you for what you've done for bringing our communities together. Amen. Uh, and in that regard, I think, all right, that's that's something that that's an affirmation of, of what I've been doing. The other thing is this, if I had stepped into orthodoxy, um, I would not have had a voice in Protestantism in all likelihood. Mm. And I found that I can be enriched by this. Uh, I've been asked to teach in my local congregation. 
uh, a series of evening uh, sessions on orthodoxy, and I've had this opportunity in many, many places. Sure. There's been an opportunity to engage in genuine ecumenism. And just as, as one final, well, I guess one final point in that regard is Ignatius of Antioch, in his letter to the Smyrnians, wrote in chapter 8, verse 2, wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, small c, Catholic. Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. I know that I have found that Jesus Christ is, as Father Barnabas said, in the churches in which I grew up, in the people who nurtured me in the faith. I know he's in the Reformed tradition, too. I know he's in Orthodoxy. Uh, I have friends who are Roman Catholic. I don't have doubt that he's there, but I've never been tempted to go up to cross the border to Rome. But I have been cross, tempted to cross the, you know, to, 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 to cross over to Orthodoxy. But I, I recognize that I can serve the Lord here. Here's where He's placed me, and uh, if, if I can serve to a degree as leaven uh, to help us appreciate each other better, so much the better. Amen. Yeah, I, it, you all can't see this, those are listening here, but I'm watching these two, and they're nodding so much with each other. I, I was told, if, we, if, if this turned out to be a debate instead, this would be the most boring debate because there'd be very little disagreement. But um, <laughs> It's true. So, so, true. So, Father Barnabas, what do you think about what he just said? I mean, he... Well, Dr. Payton, uh, Dr. Payton uh, and myself, uh, in fact, we even talked before we emailed back and forth and said, uh, Dr. Payton said, listen, this is going to be a discussion. It's not going to be a debate. I'm not quite sure how helpful that would be anyway. But I would say this. Um, I remember when I, when I first told my dad I was becoming Orthodox, he was brokenhearted. And he hung his head and he shook his head back and forth and he said, son, why would you become Jewish? <laughs> because he had absolutely no idea there existed an Orthodox Christian church. Uh, and, and, and even today, I was taking my car to get the oil changed in it, and one of the, one of the salesmen from the, the car dealership walked up to me and said, he said, so what kind of religion are you? I'm dressed as I normally dress as, a, as an Orthodox priest. I said, oh, I'm, I'm a Greek Orthodox priest. He said, is that Christian? <laughs> So we obviously have a marketing problem, but I will say this often, often, um, for instance, my congregation here in Cumming, Georgia, we're, we're over 70% converts. We're the normal, the normal uh, situation of our, of our community is we're converts to the Orthodox faith. And many times people will ask as they're making this journey. So, well, well, listen, are my relatives Christian or my, or my, is my family saved? And I, I always tell them this guys. I'm in sales, not management. I don't get those memos. It's none of my business. <laughs> but one of the and, and, uh, there's an old Orthodox saying that says, "If salvation were only up to God, we would have nothing to fear." <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point here is uh, that uh, conversion, and, and very much like the way the Orthodox looks at, look at salvation, we don't look at salvation necessarily as this punctiliar event except to say that I was saved um, uh, 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 in A.D. 33 on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. I was saved then. And in fact, the truth of the matter is, everybody, death, his death was destroyed on that day. For everybody, death is a settled issue. Death loses, period, full stop, end of discussion. So when, we, when, when, I, when I, uh, I deal with people like Dr. Payton, who um, they're— <laughs> There's a, such a thing as being as as being one without necessarily being able to put all of the pieces together, and we haven't been able to have the we haven't been able to have the wedding ceremony. 
but we're very close and we're journeying together. And who am I to judge another man's servant, for heaven's sake? So it is. It, there, there's this. There's this liberty, at least in the um, in the commodious understanding of what it means to be Christian from the Eastern Orthodox perspective. That doesn't say it's, it's like it's like um, uh, Bishop Callistos Ware said. I know where the church is. If you want to ask me where the church is, I'm going to tell you. Get your phone book, open it up, find where it says Orthodox, go there. That's where the church is. Now, if you ask me where the church isn't, I'm sorry, that's none of my business. That is not my call. The church is wherever Jesus Christ says it is. And I trust his judgment over any man's judgment about that. But if you want to talk about the center, I'm going to take you to the Orthodox Church. As, as an Orthodox priest, that's where I'm going to take you. This is where the fullness is. Last night, we had a class here called Journey to Fullness that I run, where we talked about the four characteristics and from the creed. Actually, it was the week ago. Um, we talk about the creed. The church understands herself as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Those four characteristics, those four um, sign post, if you will, of the fullness of the church doesn't have anything to do with joining a team or, or, or becoming, becoming part of a club, but it has everything to do with focusing on not what are the minimum daily requirements, but how can I maximize my connection to God through the consistent witness of the Christian faith for 20 centuries? How do I, I want that. I want, I want to go to the place where the tables are so laden with spiritual food that they bend and groan underneath the weight of it all. And when people find that, glory to God. If they join the team, oh, I, I, there's a lot of things to worry about. That's not going to be one of them I'm going to worry about. Mm-hmm. Dr. Payton, there's quite a lot there. I'm sure there's a lot you agree about. I'm sure there's probably some you didn't. As if I'm pretty sure you'd uphold that the Reformed churches and the Catholic churches and such, but you have an attitude that, yeah, you can, that Jesus is there and such. But what, what do you think about what, what was said? I, I, I couldn't quite catch and understand all you were saying. Can you ask that again, Nick? Well, I mean, it did sound like to me like Father Bombus was saying, but if you want. That if you want to know where the true church is, you go to the Orthodox Church. But I don't know about the ever. But you seem to have a much more positive view about the ever. I mean, what what do you think about what was said? I I understand the argument and appreciate it. It's it's vigor. You know the 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 strength of it in this sense that for for sure that Orthodoxy has unquestionably a historical connection all the way back to the to the apostolic times. Um, I, I have a friend, uh, Frederica Matthews Green, who's, uh, who's Orthodox, uh, and she noted that her bishop was born in Antioch, which has an unbroken <laughs> connection all the way back to St. Peter. Um, and so that, so that that is incredibly moving. And, you know, the, the, the fact of having withstood not only the persecution's before the empire became became Christian, but also the stresses that have arisen in in uh, so much of Orthodox land, so many Orthodox lands under the times of, of Muslim rule, uh, and to continue faithful to this day is is a remarkable witness and testimony. Um, I, I recognize too, from my perspective, as you, as you indicated, 
uh, that the, the Lord lives and moves within the Western, has moved within the Western church. Um, one of the things that I was treasured, I was privileged to, to learn to treasure, as, as Father Barnabas mentioned, was as a Protestant to see the history of the church in its flaws as, as, so, and, and as well as its strengths. Uh, but then when we studied it originally, it didn't include orthodoxy. It was Western Christianity that we were exposed to. And to learn to navigate and understand that sort of thing, I, I recognized in this marks of, of uh, uh, the marks of the church as well um, in a different fashion than, than in orthodoxy. Uh, so as I would understand it within, within the Western church, uh, as, as Father, Father Barnabas was said, I have some questions about some groups. There are some that have moved pretty far in directions that I would wonder how closely they can be identified with, with the historic Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, but I also recognize that there is a continuity that, that reaches back through the centuries to the early church in a different fashion. Uh, and for myself, I'm, I've been drawn into the, the larger reformed world, not because, you know, my, my, my main concern there is not Calvinism or predestination, but it's, it's the larger picture of all of life can be lived to the glory of God in the tradition in which I found myself. It's not just ministers or missionaries or, or nurses or teachers in Christian schools. But the, a strong emphasis within the re- Reformed tradition called Kuyperianism, it, it's, mm-hmm. anyway, it's, it's become very significant in, in the Western work, uh, North America and, and it, to some degree Western Europe, is that all of life is and ought to be lived to the glory of God with an with attunement to who he is and, and uh, seeking to live out Christian life uh, as consciously and, and uh, thoughtfully as possible. So I find in that regard a, a calling, a summons uh, to, to use the gifts that God has given, where he's given them, uh, and I, I find myself edified and blessed as I worship him with God's people, uh, as I interact with them, as I interact with Orthodox, with Roman Catholic friends as well. Um, and, and I have no doubt that that we are within the uh, uh, within the larger one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But I recognize that, you know, as a Protestant, uh, my connectedness through the centuries is more interrupted than it has been in the Orthodox tradition, where, where in the East, there, you go back centuries, uh, mm-hmm. all the way to the apostles. That, that's really good. Nick, may I, may I um, uh, just add to that? Because I think what Dr. Payton has said uh, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. It is extremely important to understand that it is, it is useless to try to de-Christianize people who are trying to say they love Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the gospel where... <laughs> They go, and uh, the disciples come back to the Lord and say, Lord, we found a man who was casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he, he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, what in heaven's name are you boys doing? Again, that's the Father Barnabas translation. Uh, what are you boys doing? Don't, don't give, leave that man alone. He can't, he can't do what he's doing and turn around and reject me. God bless him. Leave that man alone. And so, for me, it's it's the same with the uh, with the, uh, the the understanding of of the church in general. I would say this as a former Protestant, and I left Protestantism uh, for specific and I believe very good reasons uh, to better live out exactly what Doctor Payton was talking about. We would call that theosis. Uh, that the, the, the becoming by grace what Christ is by nature and allowing every bit of our life to be affected by the, the truth of 
the, the miraculous and, and amazing truth that the uncreated has stepped into creation, that God has incarnated himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now God has skin on him in this unbelievable, and frankly, the ramifications that has to worship and how we incarnate and make, make our faith visible and all of those things, that, that's, that's a huge show in, in itself. But for me, what I would say as a former Protestant, no longer Protestant, I would say that probably ecclesiology is the undiscovered country for many evangelicals, especially. They've never thought about it. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? But that is, that is being wrestled with now. And the very fact that Dr. Payton is there saying, hey, you know, we can, we can get some insight from the Christian East is just one more remedy. And, one, and frankly, what I see is one more work of the Holy Spirit to, um, to do what this, this old comedian told me one time. He said, uh, you might as well get rid of your labels now because if you go up, it's going to drop off. And if you go down, it's going to burn off. So <laughs> it's, it's not one way or another. But I see this as a, an obvious sign of the activity and vibrancy of the Holy Spirit's work, whoever names the name of Jesus. That, does that mean that I'm not going to press for a, um, a, 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 a very full and, uh, and serious and incarnational ecclesiology? That I'm certainly going to do that because I think that's faithful to the consistent and unbroken tradition. The church is a visible entity. It isn't. An, it isn't. A, it isn't an invisible entity. The church is real. If you want to find the church, you can find the church. You can drive to it. You can pull up into its parking lot and gather with its people. Of course, we Orthodox would say the church is not the church building. The church is the gathered people of God around the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and um, and becoming by grace what Christ is by nature. Father Alexander Schmemann of Blessed Memory said that the church gathers as the church to become the church so that they can be the church. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ, as St. Paul says? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? You can't have a relationship with the head without also having a relationship with the body. And the body is as visible as the head is. So um, it, it's, it's a waste of time to try to parse out where the wind is blowing. You just simply, as an honest person, say, hey, the wind's blowing. Isn't that great? By the way, Dr. Um, uh, Frederica and, and I are dear friends from when I was in seminary with her, with her son, you know, oh. she and her, she and her, she and her husband just retired. I understand and, that. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're moving down to Tennessee to be where their her son is a, is an Orthodox priest there in Tennessee and they're going to be helping him out. And father Gregory is, um, is doing some wonderful things, but Frederica has been a, a dear friend uh, to many people who are asking questions and wherever they land, that's not the issue. Uh, they're asking questions. Frederica has been a wonderful source of, of help for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. yeah, let, let me add a little bit to that, Nick, because okay. as Father Barnabas was speaking, it reminded me of something else many years ago. Before I became as aware of the significance of ecclesiology for, for within orthodoxy, one of the things that struck me when we moved when I moved from the fundamentalist world into the uh, in, into the uh, traditional Protestantism is that in the Bible colleges or universities, uh, by, by, uh, some of the uh, fundamentalist and, and 
very evangelical types of institutions, courses on doctrine were called Bible doctrines, plural. When you got to seminary, Lutheran or Protestant, whatever, it was called systematic theology. And the emphasis was not on individual doctrine, but on how they all fit together. But what struck me, and a couple of profs pointed out to me when I was studying at Westminster, there is no doctrine of ecclesiology in the systematics department. Mm. It's handled in practical theology. Interesting. And what, what that, now I don't know, perhaps that's changed in the last 30 or 35 years in some of the seminaries, but, but what that indicated was that, it, that within the Western world, certainly in the Protestant world, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, never became kind of a focus in the way that salvation did, or sanctification, or justification, or whatever it may be that was uh, under purview. So in that regard, there's, there, there's more endeavor to try to understand how to live as church and how to relate as church. And in the Reformed tradition, a, a great scholar of the past, of a past generation, G.C. Burkauer, mm. wrote uh, a book on, on the doctrine of the church. I forgot what it was, but a major part of that was dealing with the four marks of the, of the Nicene Creed, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, trying to point out what it meant and in what, in what ways we can see that fulfilled also in, in uh, Protestant or specifically Reformed churches. Mm. So that was a significant addition at the time. That's good, Doctor Payton. I, I, I would uh, I would uh, add that uh, there's 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 an old saying in the Orthodox Church that no one goes to heaven alone, but everyone goes to hell alone. Uh, <laughs> and so that the Orthodox would see ecclesiology as, and for instance, when you mentioned systematic theology, I had to smile. I certainly took that in my undergraduate work, but when I got to seminary in the Greek Orthodox world, there's no such thing. Yeah, uh, it, it, there's no such thing as systematic theology. In fact, um, one of the things that I learned that was very unique and frankly very, very um, uh, precious to me was this was this was really about um, becoming by grace what Christ is by nature. Really entering into what it means to be connected to Jesus Christ. What does that look like? How do you do that? How are you formed in that way? And those are the ways that we Orthodox were, were formed and shaped by that. But I would like to I'd like to ask a question too. This is something I'm genuinely curious about. In the Protestant uh, moving away from uh, a robust understanding of ecclesiology, do you think that had anything to do with uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation we also saw the enlightenment starting to come and reason being and and the individual being more talked about rather than the community, uh, the tribal uh, belonging? Uh, something that I think was absolutely necessary for Western Europe to go through, for, and the whole world, frankly, to kind of press out what it means to be person, although we Orthodox would differentiate between the concept of individual and person. Mm-hmm. We would say it's not possible to be a person by yourself. You can be an individual by yourself, but you can't be a person by yourself. A person is only a person in communion based on the doctrine of the Trinity, where God knows himself as persons in communion. But I've always been interested in where do you think this this uh, the the seed of this individualism that kind of allowed Protestant um, uh, brilliant Protestant theologians to uh, relegate ecclesiology to the practical end of things. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, it does. And and let me let me see if I can attempt at least an answer toward it. Um, as I said, when when the reformers who at the time were thinking of becoming reformers, they were just trying to straighten out the church. They were trying to be good Catholics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They were trying to be good Catholics. Uh, and, and when they tried to do that, 
uh, and it wasn't working, what they were encountering was a rigid structure uh, dominated by um, some royal family or some families that kept the, 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 the papacy largely within their grip in, 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 in Italy at the time. Right. And some dominant figures who, um, well, Pope Leo X, when he, he was the pope during Luther's time. When he, when he finally became pope, he says, God has given us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. Uh, what would that mean? Um, but there was there was a rigidity um, in in the structures that that surprised them, and when suddenly they find themselves on their own, then there's a scramble to try to structure. All right, how are we going to make the church function well? I mean, that you had congregations that continued. Uh, John Calvin said there are true congregations in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, he wrote much much later on um, than than Luther had, but you have Luther saying, well. We don't really have bishops, but we'll ask the, the princes to serve as bishops for the meanwhile um, to, to oversee the churches because we, we can at least interact with them. And there was a, a challenge for Protestantism to try to figure out the best way of going forward. In Calvin's estimation, the best way of doing it was through the council that would work in the church, kind of like in the early church, the priests were together and the and the deacons were together and then the bishops were distinct. Um but the, 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 to try to get the, the, the leaders of the church, elders as they were called in the Reformed tradition, to serve in government uh, with, with, bishop, with uh, ministers, and then they would meet collectively to try to keep each other on track. Well, that was, again, a, 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 an attempt to try to find a good way to make things function. Um, and then, but, w- but with further divisions and arguments within the churches, you have a variety of, of other alternatives that develop such that it, for example, in the church in which I, the denomination in which I grew up, basically a pastor was pretty much law unto himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You might, he might work well with the church, other church leaders. He might not. Um, and there are all kinds of variations between that and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the Lutheran structure of the, the, you know, the civil leader being the ruler. It was, uh, it was really a challenging time for them. I, th- I think what ended up happening is that to pick up on the individual question a bit more, more closely. Um, when Luther and the other reformers urged uh, the, the priesthood of all believers, they didn't urge the exegete of all believers, that uh. everybody had the right and ability because he's a Christian or she's a yeah. Christian of pronouncing on the meaning of Scripture. Could I add in also the papacy of all believers wasn't included either. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so what ended up happening was there became, in some regards, a bit of a free-for-all, as people sure. claimed X or Y or Z, in what's called the larger Anabaptist tradition. Uh, that was kind of a catch-all phrase for anything that didn't fit in Lutheran, Reformed, or Catholic. Uh, and, and so there were some exotic things that took place and would have no connection to what we would think of as Mennonites in the present day, but... Some of that was rather freewheeling and, and claims to spirits leading and, and prophecies of, of imminent changes and so on uh, in world history. And, and so you do have an awareness of, of being separated from the old structures in the church. And how is it going to go forward? Well, studies have been done that, that I haven't tried to keep up on, uh, on to what degree the Reformation impacted the rise of, of individualism as a movement per se. But there's no question that the, the, the mood shifted in the, fifth, in, this, in the time of the Reformation, the 16th century, on into the 17th century. And with the criticism of former 
um, uh, the former leaders, the former the, the Roman Church that had dominated uh, education and structure and so on, with that being called into question and the arguments that Protestants had with each other, uh, people were kind of cast adrift in some sure. regards as to where's the authority that we should have. And with the development of, uh, of as you said, the Enlightenment, uh, a call to rely on reason, uh, the increasing awareness of of other cultures around the world uh, where neither Judaism or Christianity had ever existed, and yet they seem sure. to have some some uh, positive cultural developments. Uh, this just invited a different kind of reflection that wasn't well organized. Uh, it just started happening. And so the Enlightenment comes along as, as a way of trying to figure out how do we live in this very different cultural situation and it had some really positive things and some excesses itself, as any movement does. Yeah, I, the things that I would notice about that, Dr. Payton, is that, and, and this is something that's extremely important to say, none of this is nefarious, for heaven's sake. None of this is some kind of cabal meeting in a back smoke-filled room saying, how can we undo all of the... It's just it, it just people doing the best they can with what they had. Yeah. Uh, and, and it makes perfect sense. Of course, you can't look uh, at, even at even our own tradition in the Eastern Orthodox world what we would just simply call the Orthodox world, uh, is, uh, you know, listen, if you want to find scars, if you want to find bruises, if you want to find some nasty stuff, just look at church history. It's uh, it's like watching the sausage being made. You'll never eat a hot dog again. <laughs> but yeah. but, it, it, but we're, we're not talking about, and I think this is important to say because we're, we're not talking about people who are uh, up to no good. People are doing the best they can with what they had. They're dealing with real historical situations. They're dealing with real linguistic situations, uh, travel, all kinds of stuff. Is It's just the reality. And and so for me, at least, as a former Protestant, I'm. it was a wonderful, liberating thing for me to be able to stop viewing that world with some kind of, what did these, these people have rejected the truth. Well, man, I couldn't have rejected the truth if you'd asked. I didn't know it. I didn't know any of this stuff. I'm yeah. doing. I love Jesus Christ. I want to worship Jesus Christ. I want to be. I want to go to heaven when I one day. And that's that was my hunger, and it's still the hunger of people, whatever label they happen to be wearing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in here again also because every time my wife and I have come to visit the Orthodox Church, I think it's very hard for Father Barnabas to try and put me in a category sometimes because I seem to to de- demolish all of them. And so I'm going to say I've studied the honor-shame culture of the New Testament. It's one of my, in the Old Testament, of course, it's one of my favorite areas to study. And I do happen to agree that individualism is a deadly cancer in our Western societies. And I think it, it really influences our churches over here. I think if you went over to the Far East, you find all the churches have a much more higher view of a church than most of us do here in the West. That, that's my suspicion, at least. But, yeah, I haven't agree. I, I have uh, no love of individualism. Well, I would say this. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans and, say, and says, uh, uh, you know, you are to have the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's extremely important to understand and exegete the word you is plural. Uh, (laughs) I can't hold the mind of Christ by myself. I need 20 centuries of brothers and sisters all gathering together 
for us to be able to hold the mind of Christ, because the purpose of the gospel is to reunite. It isn't to divide. It's to divide light from dark. You certainly do that, and the gospel is certainly sharp. And and if it were possible, dividing the soul and spirit. But the reality is this is about us becoming what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, let them be one like you and I are one. So when Jesus sets the standard that the unity to be experienced in the church is the unity that exists between the Father and the Son, I'm sorry, I don't see any group on the planet that has hit a home run with that. We're still all striving uh, to take that seriously and to press out the implications of that prayer. Jesus says, the unity that I want to exist between those who are with me I want to be analogous to the unity that exists between you and me, Father. And, of course, that's the reason why, frankly, Dr. Payton, I would say that um, one of the other things that drew me to orthodoxy was the emphasis on a, a, a very serious Trinitarianism with the monarchy of the Father and the Son eternally being begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding. And we would make the argument that the West started getting in trouble when she did what we would we would say that she did what St. Basil said you should never do, divide the essence or confuse the persons out of their very desperate need because of Arianism. The local council, of course, added the filioque there in the creed to help protect the identity of the son. It wasn't nefarious. Well, they were trying to undo the faith. But the Orthodox would make the would make the observation that the West, um, in their in their tendency towards scholasticism, said too much and tried to or tried to remove some mystery that needed to stay there for health. Um, we would say that uh, that that doctrine of the Trinity and the Trinitarian understanding is so vital and foundational to everything that we do that we would make the claim that you actually can't even understand yourself if your if your theological understanding of the trinity is 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 badly formed because we're created in the image of god does that make sense at all uh, and so we orthodox would say for instance one of the old jokes is um uh, you know how do we how how, how do we uh, westerners uh, get rid of uh, of our latent protestantism and uh, the 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 old bishop said well, first you got to get rid of your Roman Catholicism. <laughs> first, you've got to, because they would. One of the old one of the old sayings is, "Oh, the Pope is the first Protestant," uh, because of the difference between East and West and how they drifted apart linguistically and 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 politically. And I mean, the West the, the Western Empire was gone, and Eastern Empire lasted another thousand years after the Western Empire fell. So, I mean, it's an interesting fact. That to this day in Constantinople, what some call Istanbul, the Christians there don't call themselves Greeks. They call themselves Romans. They're the Rome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To this day, that's the identity of the Christians there in Constantinople. So for us, we would say that we we tried to wave at the West. Hey, guys, there's a danger here. And uh, that was missed. Um, it, it, um, that's certainly a one-sided view, and I'd love to hear you respond to that, Dr. Payton. Before oh. you respond to that, though, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deep Waters podcast. Right now we've got Dr. Jim Payton of Redeemer and 
Father Barnabas Power, St. Raphael Nicholas and Irene right here in coming, talking about Protestantism and Orthodoxy. If you're here next week, we're going to have someone, I'm sure you know him, Dr. Payton, Dr. Glenn Sunshine will be our guest, talking about the history of the Reformation, what it was, and what it means for us today. But now let's get back to our show. And now, uh, Dr. Payton, uh, Father Barnabas just asked you very interesting questions, so questions about the history and things like that, and yeah, I'd even go so far and say, you know, when I look at a lot of doctrines, my main questions I have are historical questions because I study history. So what do you think about all these historical matters? I, I think it's fascinating to hear you bring them up because um, when I first started teaching at Redeemer in, in, and introduced a course in Eastern Orthodoxy, and then there was one in Byzantium after that, and it just kept going, and, and the students were fascinated by it. This was during... The 1980s and 1990s, when the the when Eastern Europe was more in discussion than it is now, sure. uh, because of the former and well at that time communist and former communist lands. But what I found too was that you know what we in the West typically talk about the end of the Roman Empire in the fourth in the 400s was a misreading because it continued for another thousand years. And and I would say to the students, if you ask somebody from Eastern Europe when the Roman Empire ended. They'll give you a precise date, May 29, 1453, about 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, when the Turks broke into Constantinople. Uh, and that would shake people up a little bit. Um, but certainly, you know, with the, the – um, one of the things I would try to get the students to do is wrestle with what had happened during the time. Mm. And when we got to um, the controversies that started to develop around the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, one of the things that became clear to me was that whether it was intentional or not, the West broke faith with the rest of the church by unilaterally adding a phrase that, however useful in Spain at the time and elsewhere uh, for, for Charlemagne's purposes, uh, really introduced a rift in the church. It reflected a very different way of looking at the Trinity. I want to get back to that in a minute. Um, but it, it, it did cause a rift. And it, that's increasingly been recognized in, in Western circles, so much so that in the um, in one of the Protestant, the I think it's the Protestant Episcopal Church, in the Reformed Church in America, where, where the Nicene Creed is typed out, uh, is, is appears in the publications, the and from the Son uh, is put with an asterisk or an italics, or it, it sometimes is not added. For myself, when when I am, you know, confessing. You know, in, in church, the Nicene Creed, I somehow managed to always have a cough when it says, and from the sun. Um, Dr. Payton, if I could ask you one thing at this point, just in case there are some people listening here who might not okay. know, what what exactly is this whole philoque thing? I know what it is, but some people might not know about what philoque is exactly. Okay, it, it it's a Latin phrase for, and from the sun, which was inserted in the apostles, uh, in the Nicene Creed, so that it reads, I believe in the Holy Spirit, proceed from the Father, filioque, and from the Son. That's an addition that appears in the West in the earliest in the 580s, uh, perhaps, but certainly in, by, by the time of Charlemagne, around 800, he insists on it. Um, but it, it's unknown in the, in the East, in part because it's a very different way of looking at the, at the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, let me try to unpack a little bit, and perhaps Father Barnabas can correct me on, on some of this as I as I do it off the top of my head. Obviously, the ancient world, as as the Church struggled with the doctor, how to speak of Father, Son, and Spirit as one, and yet three, 
Uh, various terms were proposed, there were arguments and so on. But what ended up happening is two different kind of culturally situated approaches developed. Mm -hmm. In the West, where there was a lot of paganism and polytheism, uh, what ended up happening is Augustine, who was very influential, talked about the oneness of God uh, as over against the many godisms of, of what still existed in pagan thought. Uh, and once he had established that, they would talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, each in relationship to the other two. And so, but when you would pray, you would pray to God, uh, and, and you end up, but you were praying to the oneness of God. What happened in the East, by contrast, especially with the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzen, and Gregory of Nyssa, is an emphasis on the threeness of the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, with person defined carefully, yep. and, and sharing one being, one essence. Uh, substance is the wrong word because it almost implies matter. Right. But what ended up happening in, in, uh, in, as a consequence of that is prayer in the Orthodox tradition is given to the Father, given to the Son, given to the Spirit. Mm -hmm. I have read Western theologians, in fact, I read one just this, this past week, who said in the West, we should pray to the Father and Son, but never to the Spirit, which is, you know, the, the thing that strikes me about that is that we talk so often in evangelical Protestant worlds and so on about a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship is with the person of the Father, the person of the Son, person of the Spirit, or as the, the Cappadocians would have said, you cannot pray to the being of God. That we have no access to that. And it would seem, from an Orthodox perspective, that if, if the West were consistent with its Augustinian roots, it would be praying to the being of God, which is impossible. Now, we don't do that, but it's kind of a happy misunderstanding that we don't. Yeah, exactly. I would say this, Dr. Payton, I would say that you're, you're right on the money there. Uh, and I would only add that when, when we would talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we would say it's extremely important to talk about the who of God as, uh, as opposed to merely the what of God. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, I, 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 it's, it, I can't have a relationship with omniscience. Yeah. I can only have a relationship with, with the Father. I can only have a relationship with the Son. I can only have a relationship with the Spirit. Uh, and certainly, you know, the, the, and you know, you know church history well enough to know um, the, the personhood of the Spirit was the last to be fought over and, 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 and to really be pressed out. But the work was attempting to take seriously the original deposit of the faith. It wasn't discovering anything new. It wasn't saying anything new. In fact, that was the whole point of all of this is to avoid being novel, avoid trying to say, we're just trying to talk seriously about what's been given to us. Hence the reason why the early councils, the seven great ecumenical councils, are surround who is Jesus Christ. And what do we say about Jesus Christ? And how do we talk about Jesus Christ in a way that, preserves the faithfulness to the unbelievable miracle of God becoming flesh, destroying death, rising again from the dead, and then taking his physical body into the midmost mysteries of the Trinity. How do we take that seriously? What does that look like? So when we're talking about the Holy Trinity, we're talking about personal relationships. And we would, again, oppose uh, the notion of individual and person being synonymous. We would say that that's not possible. God, uh, God knows Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how He knows Himself. Uh, the great what Saint Basil, the, the great, the, who's called many times the Minstrel of the Trinity, would say, "No, no sooner do I talk about the oneness of God that I'm drawn back to the three. 
And no sooner do I talk about the threeness of God that I'm drawn back to the one. Mm -hmm. Great is the mystery that we have before us. And St. Basil said, it's this mystery that is the cross of human pride so that we stand, we understand that the only way that we're ever going to be able to really enter into relationship with this awesome mystery is through awe and wonder, not merely through intellectual pursuit. So we would say the father is the, is the monarchy. It's the monarchy of the father. Um, when, I, when, I tell, when I teach my folks the creed, I say, how do we know there's one God? We know there's one God because there's one father. It says it right there in the creed. I believe in one God, the father. That's what I believe. God the Father, and God the Father lovingly and freely shares everything he has with his Son and the Spirit, including his eternality. I always tell people, folks, when you start trying to figure this out, get a bottle of aspirin, because you're going to have one heck of a headache. (laughs) It's a mystery. It's an amazing (laughs) mystery that's meant to produce awe and wonder in you, to bring you to the end of your intellect, so that you stand slack-jawed in the face of the miracle of the uncreated God. So for us, for the Orthodox, we would say, and we would say this view of the Trinity affects our ecclesiology. It's the reason why our ecclesiology is set up the way it is and the way it's manifested. The reason why we talk about the incarnation the way we talk about. It affects so many things. In fact, I, Nick Nick and his wife, when they come out, I, I was telling them, I said, if notice, during the divine liturgy, we say things in threes a lot. And anytime they, they we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we make our cross. And so all of this is because of this holistic understanding uh, and the necessity of talking about the Trinity with very specific terms and um, and doing hard work there so that it is reinforced in the liturgical life of the church and it's reinforced in how we pray. We even have a prayer to the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly King prayer for heaven. I'm sure, Dr. Payton, you know that well. But uh, the point is we would say to the West, you may have inadvertently unmoored yourself from a safe place. We hope that this exposure to what we've been saying all these years will help you kind of patch that up. Does that make any sense? I just don't want to sound arrogant and, or triumphalistic no. about that. No. I I just published in our church denominational magazine um, an article last month uh, called When Words Can't Do It Justice. And what right. I was trying to get at with that, you know, it, I was invited to do it by the editor, um, is – after using some introductory analogies, I pointed out that that if words can't do justice to describing a little child playing with a puppy, mm. seeing a sunset, or looking at the Grand Canyon, why do we think we can do it when we're talking about God and His mysteries? Wonderful. And 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 I said what we can learn from the Orthodox is for us who let me back up is for us too often in the West with our intentionality of of trying to understand as much as we can, which takes us back to Augustine. Augustine was doing something different than some of the other church fathers by trying to figure out an analogy for the Trinity or all these. He he was going to explain how predestination, grace, and free will went. (laughs) And that's not bad. I guess that's important. It's not bad. This is not nefarious. This is a, this is saying the intellect has been given to me to worship God with. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But some of us are, are less gifted than than us. <laughs> we ended up with so many explanations and arguments about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sure. 
as in orthodoxy, you know, my, my take on it is a mystery is to be celebrated, not to be solved. Amen. And if baptism is called the, the washing of regeneration in Titus 3, 5, go That's with it. it. And if it says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, this is my body, this is my blood. That's you know, what it is. Because God says it. Yeah. And yet we, we've, we've been so determined in the West to try to understand as much as we can that we've gutted much of the mystery. And, and then at the end, we finally say, well, I can't really explain that, so there's mystery here. Yeah. Maybe we should have started there. Yeah, when my, um, when my wife and I were at a Protestant church that, yeah, Sunday, I think it was last Sunday. No, it was Sunday before. And we were, she was discussing if she should take communion or not. And I said, honey, let me tell you the real truth here, okay? I said, first off, I don't think most any church celebrates communion like it was celebrated in the New Testament times. Because that was a four-course meal going on back there. I said, but here's the real thing. You go to most any church, most anyone at, this, at any church, except for those that are very severe, they don't have a doctrine of the Lord's Supper. They don't. But you know what? They get, they get told, come, take, eat. Jesus said, do it, you do it, and that's it. And I'd say, you just do the exact same thing. Jesus says, come, take, and eat. I, I think he'd rather be you participate in the activity than have all your theology perfect about it. Yeah, if, uh, if, this is, if this depends on the ability to rationally understand everything, none of us will ever be Christian or ever be baptized or ever do anything. I would only add that um, one of the things that drew me to orthodoxy was the sense of continuity. What does it look like for a Christian to be moved from the 4th century to the 15th century to the 20th century? Could they be dropped in any one of these places that are worshiping Jesus Christ and have some sense of continuity or connection? I think that's important because the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ destroys the ability of anything to separate the body of Christ. Yeah. The body of Christ cannot be separated by time or distance or even physical death. Mortality does not separate the body of Christ. Hence the reason why we Orthodox don't have until death do you part <laughs> in our wedding ceremonies. Mm -hmm. uh, because we, we're not going to let a little thing like physical mortality say that, we bre that, say that that breaks communion. Can't do it. It's impossible. The resurrection of Jesus is stronger than mortality. Period. Full stop. End of discussion. So um, uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate, Nick, what you were saying. I also appreciate what Dr. Payton is saying here, and I'd love to hear more about this. Because one of the things that drew me to orthodoxy, Dr. Payton, is the worship. I'm a Pentecostal at heart, and so worship is extremely important to me, and an intimacy in worship. But I, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I'm becoming orthodox because I have wildfire, and I have no fireplace for my fire. And so my fire keeps burning my hut down. I need a fireplace for my fire, so I'm going to put fire in the fireplace. By the way, the fireplace needs fire too. By the way, it's, it's a mutual it's a mutual thing. But for me, one of the things that drew me to orthodoxy was this intentionality of worship that doesn't have us focusing on ourselves. I mean, one lady one Sunday came up to me and said, "Father, I really didn't enjoy the liturgy today." I said, "Well, dear, don't don't worry about that. That's no big deal. We didn't do it for you." <laughs> we, we did we did it for the Father. Jesus Christ is the audience member. We're congregation. And so for us, for we Orthodox, and for me personally, what drew me to Orthodoxy was this very powerful emphasis on adoration and worship. And when you talk about the article that you wrote, that words don't do it justice, that really starts tying in to exactly what my own hunger was in my own heart 
for a way to to adore the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I, I was one of the fathers said that ad, that that veneration is the stepping stone to adoration. That I need to learn how to venerate before I can ever truly learn how to adore. And that was important to me. So when you say what you say about words don't do it justice, that that really plugs into a deep hunger in my own heart. And I suspect it's a natural hunger given to humans, period, so that they can know their creator. Does that make any sense at all? Well, before you before you answer that, Dr. Payne, I'd like to let everyone know that you are listening to a Deeper Wars podcast. And everything we do here is supported by listeners just like you. And, you know, people, we really could use your support. If you're benefiting from the the harvest going on here, take some part in the sowing. Uh, I mean, we've got a lot of expenses here. Um, like, for instance, I, I just had some dental work done. And, yeah, I'm going to need something else done to take care of that. And that costs stuff. And just doing things for the show costs. And getting to do the research show, I have to have time to do that research. That's cost, too. So if you want to uh, help us out, go to a website, deeperwatersofprojects.com. Now, there's a link there on the site. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link, you take into the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Is my website working correctly? Yes, yes it is. Uh, Risen Jesus is the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. They're my in-laws. And you make your donation, and you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Allie and say, Hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. It will be tax deductible. And you can also buy some ebooks that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or Co-Written, Defying Inanity, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, a few others, and The Mention of Wars Project, another great book to read. And, guys, this is when I also tell you about a lot of times. We actually have a jewelry store here. We have someone who sells jewelry, and they're willing to help us out with it. And you can go, and you can purchase your jewelry, and whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to help deeper waters. And, guys, you, you know what I always tell you about this kind of thing, okay? You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, guys, please, at least share the podcast. Talk to friends about it. And go on iTunes and leave a positive review, please, because, gosh, I love to see those things. Now, first, you Father Bumps, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, yeah. Um, we have. Uh, we actually do um, a media ministry called uh, Faith Encouraged Ministries, <clears throat> where we do, um, if you go to... We also have our... Uh, weekly homilies that are there. You can uh, you can uh, watch our weekly homilies on you on our YouTube channel, Faith Encouraged Television. Uh, we also have a live show that we do uh, the second and fourth Sundays of the month on Ancient Faith Radio, ancientfaith.com, called uh, Faith Encouraged Live, where we have guests come on and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, if you want to, if you just want to learn more about uh, about our media outreach, you can go to faithencouraged.org. That's Faith Encouraged. The ED at the end, faithencouraged.org, uh, and you can find out more about that and also how you can become 
a, a, a patron and a sponsor of the ministry as well. Dr. Payton, same Dr. to you. Well, I'm I'm retired, so I don't have anything directly in that regard. But I would I would invite people to consider um, a couple of the books I've written that might be of interest to them in light of this podcast. The one you mentioned earlier, Nick, Light from the Christian East, uh, available from InterVarsity Press. Uh, another one, Getting the Reformation Wrong from InterVarsity Press, and with Ancient Faith Publishing, I, I, that you just mentioned, Father Barnabas, have a book there called A Patristic Treasury, Early Church Wisdom for Today. Good book, selections. by the way. Very Pardon? good book. It's a very good book, by the way. I enjoy it very much. Thank you. So it, with, except, with excerpts from uh, the er, earliest church fathers, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, all the way to uh, John of Damascus. Yeah, I, I, so, but, I should mention your book, Game of Reformation, when I read it in seminary, it wasn't required reading either. I was one of those bad seminary students that just read random books just because they were mentioning But professor, our professor just mentioned it offhand. Ah, that sounds interesting. Went to a library, checked it out. So, <laughs> well, great. Thanks. Yeah, it, it is a great book, and Light from the Christian East is very relevant to this, so at the end of the show, I'll be telling people how they can buy a copy of that one, too. But I think uh, Father Barnabas had just asked you about the whole idea of continuity and of worship as well, and, I mean, that that can be something difficult for some of us, because, I mean, I know when I go in and I hear the liturgy and such going on, Honestly, I'm kind of person, my personality type's like, okay, this is going on such. I, I like it when we get to the message, and that's, that's the same for me even in Protestant churches. So, I mean, what about these differences here? Okay. Let me speak to that. I'll get to the refer- to, the, to uh, orthodoxy and my experience in, in participating in orthodox worship in a moment. Let me back up to try to put it in context. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I, I was born in a Baptist home. Uh, my very earliest memory, though, was loving this Lord Jesus, whom my mom was reading me about in the Bible stories. But as a Baptist, I was professed, I was pressed for conversion. Well, from what? Uh, eventually, I, I figured out I must have done some bad things, and so, you know, whatever. And so about 10, I made a profession of faith and was baptized. My sister actually said, having grown up in a similar situation, at one point she said in frustration, Jim, I wish I had lived in sin so I could be sure I'm safe. <laughs> because of the big emphasis placed on this transformation, darkness to light. Well, right. My, my, my if, wife if, and I go to celebrate recovery together, and I find it so odd when we're there because you have always been, well, I was in pornography, I was in alcoholism, I was doing all these drugs, and I'm like, I'm just trying to be a better husband, okay? <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Well, but I mean, that, that, that background was, was focused on your individual experience and calling you. And the, the church I grew up in um, basically was focused on that kind of thing. Now, our pastor was a very good man who taught us a lot about the Bible, but every service ended with an invitation to come forward and accept Jesus. And then it, the service never began with a blessing or with a benediction as much as it did with a prayer so that you, you were there singing and hearing about Jesus, but they talked about it being worship, but it didn't sound like it. A number of years later, as I, when I was in first kind of stumbling into the Reformed tradition, I ended up going with a friend from a very similar background to a Presbyterian church locally uh, where we were. And it was very, and when we got in there, it was quiet rather than people walking around saying hi and whatever else. And she said, what's going on? I said, Has the service started? I said, no, they're getting ready to worship. She said, what? 
And at the end of the service, she said, I feel like for the first time in my life, I have yep. worshipped God because I was, what she meant was we were focused on him, not on just everything else. I, I think one of the things that continued to draw me to the Reformed tradition and, it, and, and to nurture me was the sense of standing in a long tradition, Western Christian one, uh, beginning with the call to worship, uh, the, the blessing actually uttered by the priest, by the pastor, uh, confession of sin and assurance of pardon, and, and the proclamation of the word and, and uh, the communal prayers and, and, and a parting benediction where God seemed present because not only were the people worshiping him, but then his appointed spokesperson was pronouncing his blessings on us. And that, that helped to shape me. Uh, and I think it was very important in, in my overall uh, growth in, in sense of what it means to worship. Um, a number of years ago, when, you know, the praise and worship phenomenon started taking off, especially with young people, this is already a generation back, I suppose. Um, I, for a while, there was a real buzz with it. But I started to notice that at the university where I taught, a Christian university, some students were looking for roots. <clears throat> they, they wanted something that was tangible, something that had senses to it. Uh, something that wasn't just contemporary. And and I think there's a deep longing uh, in the heart of every person. If we're all made in the image of God and, and we're, we're made for God, we don't, we'll try to fill that void with something else, but we're called to the worship of God. One of the things I certainly found when I went to the first Orthodox service I did, it was a Romanian Orthodox church service in Romanian. Yep. Didn't understand it uh, here locally. But there was no question God was being worshipped. No question. The focus was entirely on him and how utterly welcoming they were to me as a foreigner, uh, as, you know, not not Romanian, obviously not speaking the language. The more I got to know orthodoxy and experience it and to figure out what the structures were, I, w I was struck by and amazed by two things. Number one, how everything focused on God uh, and and worshiping him, honoring him with the beauty of uh, of the of the churches, the icons, or whatever else. But as I think it was Father Callistus Ware said, uh, when we come into church, we're coming into our Father's home. So if you're a little late, it's not a problem. Um, and if you say some, you want to say something to someone, you can. But the focus is on God. But you know, it's not sit down, be quiet, don't interrupt. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that's such a rich and welcoming, but Powerful uh, worship experience that every time I've been in a worship in an Orthodox service, so I, I resonate to that, and I understand, you know, just how formative that would be. I think it's a challenge, probably. You know, I, I just as a, as a question in your Greek Orthodox church, you don't use Greek, or do you use English, or what do you use? All English. We're we're all English. We're an all English community. Now that is that's becoming actually more the norm, uh, although I do do some Greek. Because it's extremely important for my own American converts to realize that they didn't start this. They received this as a gift. One of the, necess one of the necessities of worship from an Orthodox standpoint is the development of the concept and the, the virtue of gratitude. Gratitude is absolutely at the, at the very center of what we understand worship to be. We even name the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, which is based on the Greek word, thank you. Mm -hmm. So at the very heart of what it means to understand a human, what Father Alexander Schmidt, in blessed memory, said, um, he said that, that we are not so much homo sapiens as homo adorandus, the man at worship. That's when we are truly who we are. 
And we tell our folks all the time, you are most like who you really are in the midst of this work of the of the liturgy. So uh, gratitude is extremely important. So we use English uh, in the service. I do some uh, Greek now and again. We do the Lord's Prayer in five different languages every Sunday because we have groups from those different places. Uh, but something you said that I think is extremely important is that some will uh, will be confused at our Orthodox worship because it is it does strike you as very formal, but at the same time uh, a very relaxed formality. <laughs> Whereas it's almost like it's it's uh, it's it's an, an organized chaos, and that again is an is 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 also an expression of our ecclesiology as well. It's the reason why we have we have a diffused authority. Uh, in the Orthodox Church. We don't have a pope, um, uh, never have. Uh, the Pentarchy, of course, was the first kind of council, but we understand that uh, that authority should be exercised in a hierarchical conciliarity rather than merely hierarchical or merely conciliar. Uh, that is both and for it to be healthy uh, instead of either or. But it, it can strike people, as I always tell people that if if you're not used to the, the asking a question and somebody look, I don't know, and that's okay. We don't. <laughs> it's all right for it to be. I don't know uh, because we don't. We we, we have this this commitment to uh, this continuity of of experiencing living with God uh, in such a way that we don't have to have all the answers. That's not to say the answers are bad. The answers are good. And pressing out and, and really talking uh, seriously about this is a good thing. But uh, we even give communion to infants in the Orthodox Church if they've been baptized, because we do not say that cognitive ability has uh, uh, is a prerequisite for being in relationship with God. Dr. Payton. Does that make sense? You know, Dr. Payton, with what you were saying, uh, I had a few things that came to my mind. First off, we talked conversion, you neglected to mention that we have to sing 73 choruses of Just As I Am at the end of every service, too, you know, just to make sure that one last sinner comes forward. And second, I, I can remember think one of the most shaping books I've read about the church actually is when you might not think better, David Morrow's book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I think mm -hmm. it really showed a whole lot of the problems of mainly the American Western perspective on church today. Well, it certainly does move away from this notion that uh, the concept of entertainment, we would say in the, in the Orthodox, that the West began to misunderstand things when they had the priest turn around and face the people. Most of the service in the Orthodox Church, Dr. Payton, you know this, uh, I'm face. I'm with the people standing before God, and so I'm facing the same way they're facing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now and again, I'll turn around to give them a blessing as the the the, the person uh, uh, commanded to kind of live in that middle place where I'm traveling back and forth. Uh, but I'll turn around and give the people a blessing. But uh, but most of the time, I'm with them, and we're all coming to offer our prayers to God. So e even to the point of how we dress and how our churches are laid out, all of that participates in the theological message that we're trying to communicate, whereas uh, the, um, sometimes in my previous world, especially in the Pentecostal world, the style of worship was meant to be designed to gin up emotion, 
to uh, to to uh, get folks very good intentions to get folks very serious about the faith. Come down to the altar and 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 this time I really mean it and 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 that kind of stuff. But not bad stuff. That's not bad stuff. That's good stuff. But is it strong enough to to so? if I could use the phrase, reform the man <laughs> so that he becomes more like Jesus Christ. We, would, we Orthodox would make the case that it is in, within this, this um, continuous experience of God in the church where we find all the medicine we need to become by grace what Christ is by nature. We're called to be in Christ, become like Christ. Uh, and how do you do that? Uh, you certainly don't do it. Um, uh, you certainly don't do it by focusing on yourself. You have to actually uh, do what Jesus said. If you want to save your life, you got to lose it. You know, I have to say, mm-hmm. when I grew up in church, and I, my wife and I have Aspergers, and when it was when I was growing up, it was such a case that I didn't want to go on overnight trips away from home, which means I missed out on youth outings and such. And this was long before I started taking theology and such very seriously. I mean, I was always a good Christian kid, always in church and things like that, but I remember seeing all these kids that would go and they'd come back from a service and they would be so excited and such, and I noticed that they would be very, very passionate about Jesus for, you know, a week or two, and then it'd go away. And now when I see these kinds of things going on at churches, I I always get sad, kind of, because I think, I'm afraid this is just an emotional high for these kids. If they feel it, then they think it's proven, but then they'll move on to something else, and they think Christianity is having a good feeling, and that's not what it is. Christianity can give you good feelings, but frankly, if you're doing Christianity, well, you should feel outright, outright miserable sometimes. <laughs> so, Dr. Payton, your thoughts on that and what uh, Father Barnabas said? Yeah, I, I think what what Father Barnum was saying was was right on in the sense that when we're engaged in church, the purpose is not us. Mm-hmm. You know, if if somebody doesn't enjoy the worship, that's not the point. Uh, it's offered to God, and I, I, that was very well put. Let me tell you an interesting story in that regard that happened here locally. I had a, I had a friend who was a Ukrainian Orthodox priest, very highly regarded, Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Canada, and he was the priest here in Hamilton. His, and he wanted to send his children to the various high schools where they where their gifts could flourish. And the local Christian high school, Hamilton District Christian High, where my kids went, uh, had a very good music program. And it, his daughter, who would lead the choir at the Ukrainian church, oh, and wow. singing, oh, she she had a gorgeous voice, like a nightingale. Anyway, so she was selected once she was at at the, at the school to be part of the, of the octet, the double quartet that would go out, and they would be invited to come to various local churches. <laughs> whatever else. And, and she learned the musics, whatever. But then periodically, uh, uh, her, her dad would get in touch with me, and, and uh, we would talk about things, and he said, he says, Dr. Payton. And I said, yes, Father Buchman. He said, he said, what is a seeker-sensitive church? <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's a church service set up so that an unbeliever who happens to be there will feel as comfortable as possible in ways that try to entice them to realize that this is something they could get engaged in. So I, I said, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. So the music and so on, and because his, his daughter had sung at some of these. 
And he said, why would a Christian church do that? If we're to worship God, the unbeliever should feel out of it, but welcome. Like, this is intriguing, attractive, but I'm not into this. I don't know what's going on. Mm. And I, I thought... Father Bochtan, you have it exactly right. You know, and and uh, I haven't heard as much lately about seeker-sensitive service, and I'm sure they were well-intended at the time. Of course they were, yeah. But, but you know, what, that's not worship. That's something else that's going on. It's not, it's not bad. I mean, uh, uh, one of the things, Dr. Payton, that I, uh, you know, of course, I, that was the world I grew up in, uh, in the mega church. I remember the very first time I preached after my undergraduate degree was at a congregation in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where I preached in front of about 6,000 people. Uh, that is a church that was known for their wonderful choir and their worship, and it was very, very powerful and wonderful people, well-intentioned. Again, I think it's extremely important to keep emphasizing we're not, this isn't mocking. This is this simply pointing out that there may be a, 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 bit, a bit off kilter that if you keep traveling down this road, is going to get you further and further away from what you intended to do. So, um, so this is this that's the that's the emphasis. But the the world I came from, and of course, uh, work working in uh, with national religious broadcasters, the evangelical Protestant world, uh, the worship services were were really seeker sensitive, and the praise music, and, and and I remember when we moved from using the hymn book to using the praise choruses on the overhead projector, yep. uh, and the, the worship wars, and all of that stuff that was going on among the evangelicals. And uh, the March for Jesus, I never will forget, I went to, on one of the March for Jesus in Atlanta, and I was carrying an icon of all saints instead of <laughs> uh, any of the banners. And uh, one guy looked at me and he said, he said, why do those people look so serious? Or why do they look so sad? I said, they're not sad, they're focused. <laughs> they're not having a party, they're standing before the uncreated God. There's nothing to say. That's why their mouths are closed. They're in awe. And so for, for me, I think one of the things that drew me to, the, to this, this um, what I would call, maybe even what C.S. Lewis would call, this mere Christianity, this concept of worship as focused only on God and off me, where my personal preferences, frankly, just they don't come into the picture at all. What tells the truth about the God that I'm worshiping so that I will be formed by that knowledge and shaped by that knowledge. Reason why in the Orthodox Church, all five senses are used every service. Sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. All five senses are used. What it means, however a human can be communicated to, that's what we do during an Orthodox worship service. Uh, I never will forget um, when I first um, was in an Orthodox service and smelled the incense. Man, I coughed for an hour afterwards. It was just, it was just, it was something else. But there was, there was something amazing to me that even my sense of smell. And so now, even when I smell a, when I smell beeswax, I make my cross. I did. I mean, I was walking through a mall the other day and walked by the candle store, and it hit my nose, <laughs> making the sign of the cross uh, because it, it triggered something. It triggered a memory. It's, of course, smell is the most powerful memory tool we humans have. So all of this was meant to uh, communicate throughout the centuries. This was normal. 
Normal Christianity is worshipped this way. This is normal Christianity. I, I used to make the sign of a cross going by Tiavana. It was probably for a very different reason. Because I guarantee it was. Tiavana yes. is a holy place, okay? <laughs> I remember some years back when I was teaching on orthodoxy and, and this point about all five senses being uh, involved in, in participation. And some of my students sat back and thought, you know, in a lot of our churches, you're almost platonic. Yeah. You have thought and hearing, but, you know, nothing to see, usually nothing to taste, and unless the Eucharist happens to be celebrated, and nothing to smell. And it was just, for them, it was kind of an eye-opening thing. How can we, they said, within our own circles, incorporate all five senses in a way that is honoring to God? Well, and uh, I'll say this, Doctor, I think is the reason why the Pentecostal movement went through their banner phase and, and, and all this kind of stuff phase of, of uh, you know, people love a parade. They love a parade, and people are made to, to experience on more than just an intellectual level. Uh, it's, it's frankly the reason why I'm convinced the Pentecostal movement has taken off so much in the Western world, not so much in the Eastern world. It's practically unknown in the East. Mm -hmm. But in the West, uh, it, it has been a, this huge influence because of what I would argue is a lack of balance uh, in Western expressions of, of, Christian, of Christian worship. And the desire for intimacy over, uh, um, uh, overwhelms this emphasis on sterile or antiseptic uh, mere thought process. Okay. Uh, again, it's not a criticism. It's just simply saying um, uh, humanity is not going to be denied, and you're made in the image of God, and so mm -hmm. that hunger is going to show up. Yeah. And so how do we do that well? So I would, I would say that uh, in the Pentecostal world, uh, it's— you know, it's become the National Enquirer side of Christianity sometimes, but uh, it is fire without a fireplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and a fireplace needs fire, but a, a, a fire needs a fireplace. But, you know, guys, I'd say, I mean, we, we are getting closer to the end of our show here. And we've talked a lot about how we agree on many things, but there's no doubt we do disagree. I mean, whenever I show up at Father Barnabas' church, it's... Clear, he and I do have a good respect for each other, but we have a lot of disagreeing areas, too. Well, I'd say much more we agree on than we disagree on, Such, and that, that's going to happen. How can we all learn to work together despite our differences? I mean, we need to have unity, but it doesn't mean we have to have uniformity. Yeah, I, I'd say that, too. I, I think a couple things in that regard. Uh, one, I've, I've served in our denominations committee on, on ecumenism on four terms of three years each. And it's been encouraging to me to see a greater interest in reaching out to and engaging with others. Um, there are interesting a couple of developments that have happened in the ecumenical world to help in this regard. Uh, in the United States, Christian Churches Together in the USA brings together uh, Pentecostal, Black, and Holiness groups. Uh, uh, evangelicals, mainline, and orthodox churches together to interact with each other. On, on a global scale, the Global Christian Forum does that, also with the African Instituted Churches, so that one of the things we need to do is get together, and, and what both groups do when they get together is listen to each other's stories. Because as we listen to each other's stories, we find that's not what I would have expected. That's not mm -hmm. the way God's worked in my life, but 
It's the way he has in yours. And I can't deny that. So how do I make room for it? How do I under, you know, speak it and, and open myself to receive it? I, I think that's one of the big ways uh, in which we can step forward in that regard. Um, the other is to to be respectful as we, we read other people's perspectives. Um, both in Orthodoxy and in the Protestant world, we have some hard edge groups that, you know, we're the only ones, we're the only true, um, you know, everybody has to do it our way or else. I had a, a friend who converted to Orthodoxy who was corrected uh, in the Orthodox Church he was visiting because after he made the cross, the sign of the cross, he put his hand over his heart. She says, we, Orthodox, don't do that. <laughs> well, he'd been taught to do it in the other Orthodox Church he'd attended. So, I mean, we have people like that in the Protestant and evangelical world as well. Um, to learn to be respectful and in, in that our experience is not the measure of what God can do. Amen. And I would I would also add, Dr. Payton and Nick and everyone listening, um, your patience with we Orthodox uh, is greatly appreciated. We are newly free from 400 years of Ottoman occupation, where we were, it was ingrained in us to be suspicious of outsiders, to keep things covered and, uh, you know, under our hat. So we don't say much and we don't, we're not going to talk to you much about this because we don't know who we can trust. And 70 years of horrible persecution under the communist regime in the former Soviet Union. The vast majority of the Orthodox Church has lived as the most persecuted form of Christianity on the planet. And right now, our brothers and sisters are caught in between um, the Muslim world and the Jewish world and the secular world uh, in the Middle East. And so if we, if we find our, if you find us a little skittish about this stuff, uh, know that we have very good reason to be, to be cautious. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we will be less than open to an understanding of the church from an ecclesiastical standpoint uh, of the branch theory. You know, got a little bit of the church over here, a little bit of the church over here. We will be less than we will be less than open about that. We we won't have a lot of won't have a lot of sympathy for that. Understand why we won't. It's not an attack. It's not, it's not a rejection. It's simply trying to say we want to main—when I was ordained priesthood, the bishop put—because we use leavened bread in the Eucharist in our church. The bishop put the square piece of bread that goes into the chalice that becomes the body and blood of Christ in my hand, and he says to me, Barnabas, preserve this well. It will be required of you on the last day. So for we Orthodox, we have a very heightened sense of we will be we will protect this body of faith, this continuity, uh, as much as we possibly can. That isn't a rejection. Please don't hear it as a rejection. Hear it as we're trying to be faithful to what we receive. As we more and more come out and more and more people convert to Orthodoxy in the United States— more and more people are going to have a. I mean, one of the one of the things that I hear on my YouTube channel all the time that uh, Protestants write me, they say, "Father, you preach like I'm used to. <laughs> I can understand you." Uh, and so that's happening more and more. But your patience with us and your understanding of what we are attempting to do, not reject, but to preserve and to be faithful to what we received. 
regardless of what others say. It's not a reaction. It really isn't. And we love folks, but we take this very seriously. And uh, Dr. Payton, I'm sure you can appreciate what I'm talking about there. Oh, for sure. Given, given one of the things I noted in that article I mentioned in, in the church journal that I published is that orthodoxy has stood through all these centuries of Muslim oppression and then the pressure under communism. We really, in the West, only got to know orthodoxy in the last hundred years or so. That's it. That's because it. Because of the communist revolution. Right. Uh, and so many faithful Orthodox fleeing to the West uh, and setting up institutions, writing books, and now we're much more aware of who you are. But yeah, yeah relative newcomers to the situation in the West and we're still getting to know you and appreciate your strengths. Yeah. Well, thank God. And one of the things you also wrote that I appreciated was when you mentioned that there was a period of time in Western theology where uh, orthodoxy was looked at as the atrophied uh, relic uh, of a past that, that that's no longer there. And more and more, we, we, we West is discovering, boy, that really is just a misnomer. It, it, it's, it's really not the case at all. There's some vibrant theological work. Uh, that is going on among the Orthodox even today, especially today, as we're as we are now more coming more and more in contact with the secular West that we didn't have before, and we're yeah. trying to learn that language, and but we're also trying to be faithful to this timeless deposit of faith that uh, that that we will stand before the awesome judgment seat of, of Christ and give an account for. Anyway, guys, it's time we got to sadly wrapping things up because I think you all could keep going on here for hours and hours here. The book that. Dr. Payton has been, about, has been talking about Light from a Christian East. As of the time of this recording, the Kindle version on Amazon is $14.39. The paperback is $18.19. Now, Dr. Payton, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, the, the website would be all small letters, J. Payton, P-A-Y-T-O-N, at redeemer.ca, Redeemer. R e d e e m e r dot c a. Mm-hmm. I still use the, um, the the university email for that uh, that I had when I was teaching there. Okay. And do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deepwater's audience? Pardon me. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deepwater's audience? Just, just to en- encourage them to continue to be open, to respectful. Uh, to listen to your to your podcast, you you know, from my impression from just interacting with you on this one is that you seek out important topics that uh, people could people can find stimulating. It's it's not just religious entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is stuff to chew on, to be open to, and I think you know from what I've seen of it uh, and what I've experienced of it, uh, it's it's done well and done thoughtfully. So mm-hmm. a lot to be a lot to be appreciated in this podcast. I appreciate that. And in fact, Father Barnes, there might be said. Uh, you actually, an Orthodox priest, would recommend listening to this Protestant podcast, I think, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's something that I wrote on, uh, on, um, uh, on uh, what is it? It wasn't YouTube. It was uh, the, the podcast. There we go. Yes, exactly. And, and I, I wrote that on there, mainly because uh, you don't get extra points for being ignorant. Mm-hmm. Uh, ignorance is a virtue. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to learn and, and to know. So thank God for so that. Do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Oh, sure, yeah, and I'd, I'd recommend, I mean, if you'd like to read my book, it's called A Faith Encouraged, uh, and you get it at Ancient Faith Store. If you just go to store.ancientfaith.com and look up A Faith Encouraged, uh, you'll see my book there, and it, uh, it's basically uh, a year's worth of, uh, of devotionals that 
help people deal daily with the scriptures from an orthodox standpoint. So that's something that I'm grateful to God for. And if you'd like more information, faithandcourage.org is always a place to go to. But you can also drop me a line at frbarnabas, B-A-R-N-A-B-A-S, at faithencouraged.org. And uh, you can drop me a line there. I also have a video series called A Journey to Fullness that is an actual 16-part introduction to the Orthodox Christian faith for non-Orthodox. So it's uh, it's uh, 16 20-minute videos along with a workbook. And uh, if you want to know more about that, it's called A Journey to Fullness, and you can get it at the Ancient Faith store as well. Yeah, I just looked it up here. Um, as of time, this recording again on Amazon, Faith and Courage, Kindle Edition, $9.99, paperback, $19.95. Do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave with Deeper Waters audience? Well, uh, Nick, just thank you for allowing us to do this. I think this is extremely important work, and um, I think it's extremely important for the the audience to see uh, two Christians from two different uh, Christian denominations be able to have a conversation that is serious and substantive without this I'm right, you're wrong uh, dichotomy. That is, it's not necessarily even bad. It's just too small. It's too small to reduce this to correct or incorrect. We want fullness, and, and that's what that, that's what this work has been able to do. And I'm, I'm grateful to God, to Dr. Payton and yourself uh, for allowing me to participate in this, and hopefully uh, the King of the Universe will get the glory he deserves because this is all for his glory anyway. Technically, it's been free Christians in discussion about this. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And, and guys, I'm thinking that maybe when... Uh, Dr. Payne, when your new book comes out here, we might have to do this again. That, that would be fun. And a Pentecostal amen to all of that stuff. Amen, brother. Glory. I'd like to remind <laughs> everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Glenn Sunshine on, talking about the history of the Reformation, what happened, why did it happen, and what does it mean for us today. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.